Mozart, the 18th century Austrian composer, mastered his first musical composition on the piano in 30 minutes, three days before his fifth birthday. Did you know that he composed his first symphony for all the instruments of the orchestra at the age of eight? And did you know that by the time of his death, just before the age of 36, he had written 41 symphonies, 36 concertos, and numerous other musical works? Could you do that? Of course not, you answer. Why not? Because Mozart was a prodigy, endowed with a special genius from birth. Did you know that a man named Elijah, uh, no pictures available, he lived 3,000 years ago, prayed and halted the rain in his country for three and a half years? Did you know that he prayed over the body, the dead body of a boy, and he was restored to life? Did you know that he prayed and out of a clear blue sky fire fell from heaven and consumed a sacrificial ox drenched in water? Did you know that he prayed and the rain was then restored? Could you do that? Of course not, you answer. Why not? Well, because Elijah was a great prophet, especially called and gifted by God. So, is effective prayer, prayer in which God answers directly and powerfully, like a musical ability? Either you have it or you don't. And is the reality, therefore, that most of us can no more pray and expect God to answer powerfully than play the piano at the age of four and compose symphonies at the age of eight? That, I suspect, is what most of us think. Though we may not say so out loud, especially in church. So, although we pray, we don't really expect any results, any dramatic results. And sometimes we don't expect to be truthfully told any results. So let me ask you, as I've asked myself thinking about this this week, if I was to go around the congregation and say to each person here who claims to be a Christian, just tell us the last time, the most recent occasion you prayed and God answered. Or if I said to you, what and when was the most powerful answer to any prayer you have ever prayed? You see, our theme as a church for this year, and our verse for the year, our theme is prayer, our verse for the year is Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. But what is the point of being devoted to prayer if you have no real expectation that God hears and answers prayer? Or more to the point, hears and answers your prayers. Over the next few weeks, God willing, we'll be focusing on the life of the prophet Elijah and especially his prayer life under the title I've chosen, The Man Who Prayed. But the first thing we need to do before we do this is to resolve the issue we've raised. That is, in relation to prayer, 
is Elijah a special case in a class of his own? Or with a very select few others? If so, then at best all we can do is admire him as we would do a musical or sporting genius. And I have to be honest, if this is the case, then I don't plan to spend many hours laboring over preparation for a series of sermons on this, and I suspect you don't particularly want to hear them either. However, the good news for the preacher, and I hope for the hearer, is that the New Testament, commenting on the Old Testament record of the life of Elijah, describes him not as a genius to be admired, but as a role model to be imitated. And it describes him by this little phrase, it says, Elijah was a man just like us. And that's our theme this morning, as we begin this short series. And you'll find the phrase, this particular phrase about Elijah in the Bible. So, you'll need a Bible, it's important. If you haven't got one, don't feel embarrassed. If you're a regular worshipper, do feel embarrassed, because you should bring your own. Uh, But if you're a visitor or whatever, just pick one out of the pews and turn to James chapter 5. The little book of James in the New Testament, right towards the end, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 1216. Page 1216. And everyone got one? If you can't see one, just look around and wave your arm. Ask someone to pass you one. Page 1216. We're going to read from verse 13 to 18, and it's all about prayer. As we read it, notice the number of times the word prayer occurs, or praying, or praise, or whatever. It's written to Christians. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now this is God's word to us today. And look at the context in which the little phrase occurs. Do you see it there? In verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. James is writing about prayer. Why did he choose Elijah as an example? Most people think of Elijah as a great prophet. I hope we'll see that he was a great prophet, but he's a great prophet because he was a great prayer. But why did James choose him? Well, because the Jewish people held Elijah in particular high esteem. They regarded him as the greatest, along with Moses, of all the characters in the Old Testament. One commentator writes, So wonderful did the achievements of Elijah seem to succeeding generations that he came to be regarded as semi-divine. But James knocks this on the head by saying, Ah, Elijah was a man just like us. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, Elijah was as human as we are. This same word is only found in the word human, like us, is found in only one other place in the New Testament. 
in the book of Acts, there's a story there on one of the first missionary journeys that a man called Paul and his companion Barnabas uh, made through the Mediterranean world, and they came to a little town called, well, it's quite a big town called Lystra. And there, in the name of Jesus, they healed a man who had been lame from birth. And the crowd in this city was so excited, they shouted out, the gods have come among us. And they ran with garlands to put these two men on a pedestal. And the Apostle Paul is absolutely horrified and he says to them, don't do this. We're only men, human, like you. Now that's the same word, you get the idea? They thought, if you can perform a miracle like this, you must be a god. He says, no, no, we're just humans like you. And James is saying, think about Elijah when he prayed. And people said, oh, he was like a god. No, says James, no, he was a human being just like you. Douglas Moo, writing in his commentary on James, says, Prayer, James wants to make clear, is a powerful weapon in the hands of even the humblest believer. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. It does not require a super saint to wield it effectively. Now, obviously this begs the question, if this is the case, why do so few of us use prayer as an effective weapon? Why am I so limited in my prayers and expectation? And I want to look a little more closely at what is said here so that we might indeed learn how to pray like Elijah. Not necessarily for the same things, but with the same expectation and the same answer from God. Look again at the passage in front of us. The verse about Elijah in verse 17 and 18 are preceded by the principle that he's stating. Look at the end of verse 16. This is what he says, an important principle about prayer. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. This is a very difficult verse to translate into English fluently because it's a strange constriction in Greek, the language it's first written in. Literally it says, powerful in its effects, is the petition of a righteous person being effective. Not very good English, is it? And the translators have tried all sorts of different ways to translate it. Let me, there are a few coming up on the screen. The Revised Standard Version says, the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. The New English Bible says, a good man's prayer is powerful and effective. The Good News Bible says, the prayer of a good person has a powerful effect. The New Living Translation says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. And uh, Philip's paraphrase says, tremendous power is made available through a good man's earnest prayer. Now, put them all up and said them all, because it just gives you a general sense, although he can't translate it fluently, I'm sure you get the main idea of what it's actually saying. So I want to look at this as a beginning to our series on Elijah, and just look at the three parts of the verse again. Alright? The three parts of the verse. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And this is very easy to remember, right? We need to focus on three things. First of all, the person. Right? Secondly, the prayer. And thirdly, the power. And thankfully, they all begin with the same letter, so you'll remember them. Let's begin then with the person who prays. As we've seen, you don't need to be superhuman to pray the kind of prayers which God answers. 
Let me say it again, because it just went over your head. You don't need to be superhuman to pray the kind of prayer that gets answers from God. And as far as we know, prayer, speaking to God and God hearing and responding, is a privilege limited to human beings. As far as we know, animals don't pray. Even those wonderful whale songs that you hear recorded, you know, that everybody likes to listen to. As far as we know, whales do not need to ask God to give us today our daily krill. And angels, as far as we know, do not pray. They praise God for all that He is. But prayer, then, is the greatest privilege possible for a human being. Just think about it for a moment. A human being like you, sitting there in the pew in Charlotte Chapel, like me, standing up here, it is a great privilege that I can speak to the Almighty God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who sustains all things by his power, who holds the worlds in being, the universes that we barely begin to comprehend. I can speak to him and he hears and answers. But although prayer is a privilege for any, every human being, it doesn't actually say here it's a privilege for every human being, that kind of prayer that God answers. Look very carefully. It says, the prayer of a righteous person, literally, the righteous, is powerful and effective. What he says, the prayer of a righteous man. It's not to do with men, ladies. It just says the righteous. It means men or women. The translators here put man because Elijah's coming next and he was a man. Now, in, therefore, we need to know what does he mean when he says righteous because maybe this disqualifies me at this point and it may well do. So what does the word righteous mean? Well, literally, it means right with God in a right relationship with God. It means morally perfect without sin, without blemish. And if that were the end of the matter, then we can all go home and forget about prayer forever. Because none of us, the Bible says, is righteous. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, first three chapters, his great conclusion, there is no one righteous, no, not one. However, the good news is, which is why we're here, why we can pray, is because God has made a way by which unrighteous human beings like you and me may be declared righteous before him. In the Old Testament part of the Bible, God provided a way through the sacrifice of animals as a picture of a better way that was to come. In the New Testament, we can come to God and know that he hears and answers our prayers because through Jesus, when he died on the cross, the righteous, the Bible actually says in the New Testament, he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, the only perfect person, to bring us to God, to bring us into a relationship with God. And so we can be in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Now, if you've never come to that point, if you're trusting that when you pray, God will hear your prayers because you're better than most people, or even the best in your class or family, I'm sorry, you've no hope on that basis. Because the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But through Jesus, no matter if you're the bottom of the class, the worst person, you can know God's forgiveness and be declared righteous, put right with God through faith in Jesus. And maybe this morning you need to do that. Certainly if God is ever to hear and answer your prayer. 
But probably James means more than this because he's writing to Christians who've been put right with God. You see, it's possible to assume, you may be saying, oh, that's good. I remember when I became a Christian and when I was put right with God. It was so many years ago. In my case, it was a long time ago. 40 years ago, 41 years ago. And you might say, well, that's it then, I'm okay. Whenever I pray, God will hear and answer my prayers. It's an automatic ticket. You see, God's people of old made that same fatal assumption, the people of Israel. The prophet Isaiah said, Surely the Lord's arm is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. We find the same principle stated in the Psalms. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And this applies to Christians as well. You see, that right relationship with God, when you put right with God through Jesus, it should be, the proof of this is demonstrated in right living. In fact, the whole theme of this book of James is, he's speaking against people who say they have faith, but there's no evidence. And he says, faith without works is dead. If you claim that God has put you in a right relationship with himself, that will be seen in right living. It doesn't mean you never sin, of course not. But it means that you're living an open life before God when you're aware of things that are wrong, you confess them to God, you put them right. In fact, this is the theme of this whole little letter in James. Just go back to the actual passage. And you need to understand verse 14 in context. It's a very controversial verse about praying for the sick. And notice the connection. We'll come back to it in a moment. Notice the connection at the end. It says, Is any one of you sick? You should call the elder church over him to pray with him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now notice the next bit. If he has sinned, the Lord will forgive him. He will be forgiven. It doesn't mean that all sickness is caused by sin, but it means there are cases where it's part of God's judgment, and you need to put that right. So a righteous person is someone who's in a right relationship with God, but also, leading on from that, also in a right relationship with other Christians. Look at the next verse. Therefore, confess your sins to each other, and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. It suggests there's a breakdown in the church that he's writing to. Christians have fallen out with one another. And if this is the case, then they need to put that right, otherwise it will not be the prayer of a righteous person. Therefore confess your sins, pray for each other, so that you may be healed. Now, let's just pause a moment before we move on and ask some practical questions. Is this one of the reasons why God doesn't answer my prayers? Is there something in my life, some hidden sin, some particular issue? Have I fallen out with somebody within the congregation? You see, when we come together as a church and pray together, we need to make sure that we're in a right relationship with God and with each other. Because if so, a divided church like that, the Lord will not hear and answer powerfully. So maybe that's one reason why God does not answer our prayers. Are there things that you need to put right this morning? And you're saying, Lord, why don't you answer my prayers? 
and the, your relationship with God is still there, but your sins have made a barrier, have hidden God's face from you so that he does not hear. If you cherish sin in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. And if there's someone in this congregation or another fellow Christian that you're not on speaking terms with, then it mars your speaking relationship with God. That horizontal relationship affects your vertical relationship with God. You need to put that right if God is to answer. So the person who prays needs to be in a right relationship with God demonstrated in right living and a right relationship with others. That's the first thing. But there may be a second reason. Look again at the verse that we have in front of us. Not just the person who prays, but secondly, the prayer that is prayed. If you look again at James 5, as we read it through, I'm sure you noticed that the word prayer and prayed and praise comes quite a few times. It's about seven times in six verses. The word used for prayer there is a sort of general prayer. You know, it covers all aspects of what you do when you speak to God. It's the kind of general word for prayer. It's two different forms of it used here. But when you come to verse 16 and the principle there, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. A different word for prayer is used, quite an unusual word. And this word places the emphasis on the specific need of what is asked for. It's not just prayer in general, it's specific prayer about a specific thing. In ancient Greek, it was the word used when you went to speak to a king and asked for a favour, when you petitioned the king. And in the New Testament, the word is only used of addressing God. In older versions of the Bible, the word is translated supplication. In more modern versions of the Bible, it's the word petition. It's used in... Philippians chapter 4, you remember that bit that says about don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition present your request to God. The word prayer is a general word, and then he says, and petition, specific things you want to pray about. And this suggests a focus or intensity praying for a specific issue, rather than prayer in general. Now this doesn't mean that you never pray in general. John led us in prayer for some very general things, but specific things as well or that it's inferior. But there are times when there is a particular issue that we focus on that we want to pray for. When we need a particular, powerful, effective, specific answer from God. For example, those of us who have the privilege and worries of having children, pray for them every day, asking God to bless them and watch over them. And when we pray together, you just pray in those terms generally, don't you? To keep asking God to keep them from harm and physical danger. But when there are specific issues, your prayers become more focused. I said goodbye to my daughter yesterday, early in the morning at Edinburgh Airport. She's gone to West Africa to Togo for a month. And I woke up this morning thinking about her, thinking, Lord, I hope she's got there safely. Watch over her, keep her from having lived in Africa for all those years. You know, you can, you can specify, you know, Lord, keep those mosquitoes out of the room, the malaria away. And, you know, your, your prayer is much more specific because it's a specific issue that you're praying about. And the more specific the issue, the more specific your prayer, and the more you're looking to God to answer. It doesn't mean that it has to be a long prayer. In fact, sometimes these kind of prayers are so specific that all you do is say, Lord, save me, or Lord, answer. They don't have to be couched in flowery language. And that's 
what happened with Elijah. Something very interesting we'll see in the next in our series in a couple of weeks, God willing. It says, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain. We'll see as we go to 1 Kings, which records the story, there is no record in, the rec- in, in 1 Kings or anywhere that actually says Elijah prayed. Just said he came to the king and said, it's not going to rain anymore unless I say so. But James says, uh-uh, he prayed. In fact, it actually says literally, when it says Elijah prayed earnestly, it's a translation, it's a true little phrase, it says, with prayer he prayed. Well, how else do you pray? But it, it's an expression that, ex- that communicates intensity. You remember when Jesus had that final meal with his disciples that we call the Last Supper? He used the same kind of uh, constriction. He said, with desire have I desired to eat this meal with you. In other words, I really earnestly want to share this with you. Now it says Elijah prayed with prayer. He prayed earnestly, specifically. And we see in the Bible often that kind of intensity in prayer. Think of Jacob, who we thought about earlier this year, when he wrestled with God in the human form. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He didn't just sort of lie there and say, Lord, bless me. No, he hung on to God with desperation. There are times when we do that. The Apostle Paul, you remember when he wrote about that man with that very long name, Epaphroditus? He was a great guy with Epaphroditus. He said, writing to the Christians in Colossae, he says, Epaphroditus, he's always wrestling in prayer for you. He's, he's serious about this. So perhaps here's another reason why our prayers are powerless and ineffective. They lack focus or intensity and instead are general and bland. You see, Elijah's prayer was specific. He said, it's not going to rain again unless I say so. Now, let's suppose he didn't say so, and two weeks later it poured it down with rain. Well, he put his life on the line, didn't he? Are our prayers so unfocused all the time that we wouldn't know whether God had answered or not anyway? This is the case of what the cynic said, you know, blessed is the man who expecteth nothing, he'll never be disappointed. For example, there is some merit in praying, Lord, bless all the Christian teachers in Scotland. Or you can narrow that down and say, Lord, bless all the Christian teachers in Charlotte Chapel. In actual fact, there are quite a lot of them. And you could actually home in more specifically and say, and she's not here so I can embarrass her, you say, Lord, bless Leslie Reed, who's teaching at St. Thomas School. And it may be, if you know Leslie really well, there might be some specific issue, this particular term that she's going back, that she wants prayer for, and therefore your prayer, can you see what I'm saying? It's like drawing the focus in more and more intensely on a specific issue. And powerful and effective answers to prayer are usually seen in experience when they are focused. And that focus in prayer usually comes when our prayers are informed by facts. That's why, just from the floor here, we pray in this church for our mission. We have this wonderful bulletin that uh, Joyce Watt prepares uh, every two months with email information, up-to-date information, with pictures from all our missionaries every day, specifically asking for prayer. Today we're praying for Stephen Hutchison, is serving as a pastoral intern at Cumberland Community Church in Atlanta. And there's some specific things that Stephen wants us to pray for. They're listed here. And when we meet on Tuesday, bring your copy with you because we'll be praying specifically for these specific issues. And in the next one, it says, give thanks for. There's always a give thanks for and a please pray for. 
and they follow one from the other because what we pray for, we then give thanks for when God answers our prayers as we bring one another before the Lord. Now, this of course begs a very crucial question again. Even given the information that we have, how do we know specifically what to pray for? Think about Elijah. Did he just wake up one morning and say, gosh, here's a good idea, that'll show King Ahab. Right, it's not going to rain, unless I say so. Where did he get the idea from? Well, we'll think about it in the next study. Is it saying we're encouraged to do the same kind of thing? Which would be an even more remarkable phenomenon if it didn't rain in Scotland for three and a half years. Surely not. If our prayers are to be powerful and effective, they need not only to be informed by facts, but also, what I would say is, inspired by faith. That is, as we bring a specific issue before God, we seek his mind and will about what we should pray and how we should pray. You see, Elijah was living in a time of spiritual decline when the people of Israel had turned against God. And he knew the law of Moses that said, the Lord had said to the people of Israel, if you follow me, I'll bless you in the following way with crops and harvests and families and so on. And the law of Moses said, but if you don't, then the skies will withhold the rain and the crops will wither up and die. So Elijah was praying in line with what God had already revealed in his word. And so his prayer was informed by God's word. So when you come in prayer, you need to make sure that what you're asking for is in line with what God has revealed about himself and his will. Look at the context again in James. James says, if someone's sick in the church, the word there used is as someone very sick and weak, so sick they can't come to church to be prayed for, they're lying there at home, and he says, if that's the case, then call for the elders to come and pray. Now, I don't want to get into a long discussion about the significance of the oil and everything else, but the effect of the prayer, and look more closely at what it says. Okay, these elders come to this house, and I've done it myself with some of you who are elders and other places. How do you know what to pray for? Well, in my experience, when you come to pray, what is God's general will, first of all? What does God want for us? Now, I believe that God normally wants for us, not that we're lying there sick. God's general will is for our health and well-being. But we live this side of the fall. We live in a fallen world, this side of eternity. So when we come to pray, there are times in my experience when God specifically, as we seek his face, gives us that certainty in faith where we pray with conviction and certainty about God's answer. There are other occasions where we have no certainty and we just have to commit it to the Lord in prayer like our Saviour, though in far less measure when he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. But notice, first of all, he prayed that it might be taken away. But he said, if not, I'll abide by your will. In those instances, we need the prayer of faith. And if we don't have it, the prayer of faith is still to trust God in those circumstances. Uh, look what it says further on. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. You don't need to seek any particular guidance because the Bible very clearly says, if you've sinned, if you've sinned this morning, you can come with confidence. You don't need to say, I wonder if God wants to forgive me. Of course he does. Or here's a church that's riven by dissension and people are falling out and they come together and seek God's face. 
if they confess their sins to one another, does God say, well, I'm sorry, but it's not good enough. I know you've confessed your sins, but really, um, I'm not going to accept that. No, God always says in those circumstances, that's my will. And we can be sure that God will hear and God will answer. Sick people, sick churches. So when these two things come together, that we're in a right relationship with God as far as we know with one another, and when we seek God in a focused way, informed by fact, inspired by faith, then what we expect is the power that is released is the third and final thing. We're almost through. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The Revised Standard Version is closest to the original. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. The word translated power or powerful is defined by one writer as potency, power waiting to be released, untapped resources. I like that. Untapped resources. And the word translated effective or in its effects is really a verb. And it's a verb used of what God does in a situation. That is, in a situation of great need, when a person in the right relationship with God focuses on a particular issue, then the untapped resources of God are energized, brought to life, brought to bear on that particular situation, divinely energized by the prayer of a righteous person. So as we'll see in our series, the powerful results of the prayers of Elijah, producing drought, rain, life from death, fire from heaven, those are the kind of powerful results that happen in his experience. It's not the specifics that matter. We don't transfer one to the other. Pray for fire from heaven. But it's the effects that matter, that God answers powerfully. Alec Matir writes in his commentary, when Elijah prayed, there was such a result as only God could bring about. When Elijah prayed, there was such a result as only God could bring about. And we've seen that through prayer. Look at the context here. What is he illustrating? He's saying, in a church situation, this principle, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effect, applies when people are sick, when people have sinned, when churches are divided. And the greatest miracle of all, if we did but recognize it, is that God provides forgiveness. And that's the kind of prayers that God answers in a church context. And then he illustrates it from the life of Elijah. If you want a good commentary on James, a very practical one, if it's still in print, John Blanchard, the evangelist, has written a, a little book on James, which is quite a big book, called Truth for Life. And commenting on this, he says, prayer works. Or to put it more accurately, God works through prayer. God works through prayer. Now the final question is this. Is God's great power released when we pray? Or do his resources remain untapped? Whatever else we may think about what we've heard this morning, I want you to go away and think about this. Are we seeing God's untapped resources released in our lives, in our families, in our situations, in our church, in our wider community? Or do they remain untapped resources? One of his hymns, John Newton, a less familiar one than Amazing Grace, John Newton wrote, You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much.
May God help us to understand, put this into practice in our lives. We're going to sing a hymn together before we conclude.